Welcome to McQuaid Arcade, the podcast for all things 80s. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. This week, it's Ghostbusters, what do you want? <laughs> oh, that was my Annie Potts impersonation, and it was rough. Did you know, On so in Ghostbusters, there's a commercial, right? They show a commercial on the screen, and there's like a 555 phone number that comes up. We're ready to believe you. Yes. I want to say for the DVD release... For some anniversary, they changed that. They replaced that with an actual phone number you could call, and you get a little uh, recorded message from Janine. Isn't oh that cute? Yeah, that's so cool. I love that. I got to look that up. Look at the uh, bonus stage for this episode for more info. So we are talking about the 1984 classic supernatural comedy. Not to be confused with the beloved children's television show with a, a, a gorilla in a hat fighting <laughs> ghosts. They're often confused. Uh, we're talking about the real Ghostbusters. Well, not the real Ghostbusters, which actually referred to a cartoon. Right. I mean, we will talk about the real Ghostbusters. We'll get there. So this 1984 classic supernatural comedy film was directed by Ivan Reitman and written actually by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, who also starred along with Bill Murray. This is a really neat movie because this trio of eccentric parapsychologists start a ghost catching business in New York City in a time when there was this giant transition, I think, towards being into business and thinking about money and really the kind of celebration of late stage capitalism had begun. Very 80s. The film, very 80s, right? It is a quintessentially 80s film. It also stars Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis and features Annie Potts, who we've mentioned, and William Atherton and Ernie Hudson in supporting roles that are all really iconic at this point. It was released in June of 1984 to great critical acclaim and actually was the number one film in theaters for seven weeks. Of course, it became a cultural phenomenon after that that persists to this very day. And indeed, I dressed up as a Ghostbuster for the following Halloween. Check the bonus page to have a look at my costume. We were all wearing our, what was that brand, those famous, the hard, awful plastic masks <laughs> and the uh, like plastic smock, those costumes, and Biggs shows up in this custom-made proton pack and jumpsuit. It was a legendary costume, remembered to this day. It was pretty awesome. We, we hit a couple of army surplus stores. We did a lot of paper craft and cardboard craft to make everything look pretty real. And I have to tell you, I felt like I really was the fifth Ghostbuster when I wore that suit. This is such a treasure that the Library of Congress has selected it for the National Film Registry, finding it, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, unquote. We think they were spot on with this designation. The thing about Ghostbusters is it deftly and efficiently creates a world, an entire world in 105 minutes. And it's a world that I want to live inside. So maybe we can talk through a little bit of what the movie's about. So I'm assuming just about everybody here who's listening has seen Ghostbusters. If you haven't, pause the show, pick up your phone or your iPod or your Zoom, <laughs> however you're enjoying our program, pause it. We'll wait. We'll be here. Go watch Ghostbusters. Come back. Thank us. <laughs> and then listen to the rest of the show. I just want to jump in real quick about the runtime of this movie. Like you said, it's only 105 minutes. And I'm pretty sure we said this about the Goonies. There was just not a wasted second in this movie. By the time things get going, we know... These characters, we know these main characters, they're introduced in such a fun way that tells us everything we need to know about them, and we sort of hit the ground running by the time the story starts up. So the story starts with a scene that, at the time, was really scary, the library scene. Straight up frightening. Right? The New York Public Library, uh, a poor librarian, encounters uh, this ghost 
And that's how the scene opens with the scary scene. And then we cut to sort of getting to know our main characters, Peter Vinkman, Bill Murray, who's performing obviously fake ESP research <laughs> experiment using, uh, help me out here. What are the cards? Zener cards. The Zener cards. Those are the ones with the wavy lines and the circle yep. and the triangle. Yep. Uh, there is what he might refer to as an attractive co-ed there, <laughs> a young lady. Such a as, gross term, but uh, that's what he probably would call her. Oh, yeah. Uh, that would be the nicest thing he would call her, I think, Peter <laughs> Vinkman. Um, it, it, it sets him up so perfectly as a character. We get a little bit of, uh, of his background into psychology and ESP and stuff like that. Juxtaposed with Ray running in uh, and telling him about the, the situation at the library. Now we see Ray and Egon are quickly established as the sort of serious scientists here with tons of technical and occult knowledge. They really are. They're totally nerdy and they're super into it. And it's just such a neat trio to have two of the folks who are really focused on the science and passionate about it. And the third one, who's sort of the comic relief, but also in a way is the straight man, especially in the first part of the film. Yep. So they head to the library where that poor librarian is still recovering and they kind of explore around and there's some really funny, charming scenes. And then we really see the ghost full on, which is absolutely terrifying the the face of that ghost when she opens up her mouth totally freaks me out of course the boys run out of there and are totally frightened but it's neat because they actually again put a little marker down in reality because egon says quote we now we have an excellent chance of actually catching a ghost and holding it indefinitely unquote of course uh egon is quickly rewarded with a nestle crunch bar by venkman <laughs> i just read uh when harold ramus passed away a few years ago now people as a tribute as a little shrine brought uh nestle crunch bars and twinkies which he also there's a reference to twinkies later in the movie uh and put them at the uh, at the firehouse in new york and i thought that was super sweet i totally love it the ghostbusters before they're the ghostbusters are thusly kicked out of their university and the dean gives them a real rubbing and says their theories are the worst kind of popular tripe. The methods are sloppy and highly questionable and they're kicked out. And in eighties fashion, this inspires them to go into the private sector and try a business. And thus the ghostbusters are born. So this all coincides with a huge increase in ghost activity around the city. And, uh, our boys quickly have their hands full. Their first real customer, their first real client is Dana Barrett, a cellist, Right? Isn't she a cellist? Yes. Um, she's a painting. She's a painting restorer as well in Ghostbusters 2. She is a renaissance woman. <laughs> We're going to talk about that movie in a little bit. Um, she comes home to some serious paranormal activity. Eggs frying themselves on her countertop. And a terrifying figure growls at her. An animal growls at her from her refrigerator and says, you do it. You do the voice better. Zool. Very good. I'm not, I'm not sure we should leave that in. <laughs> um, eventually, this all leads them up to the big bad of the movie, Gozer, the destructor taking the form of the famous Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. The story behind the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is amazing, by the way. We were 100% convinced that that was a real thing. Like, it, it we're going to talk about this more, but one of the many things that made this movie feel so real was that big, dumb marshmallow guy because he was put together from such recognizable real things 
the Michelin man and the, and the Pillsbury Doughboy. It just, it's just a testament to how real this world they created in such a short amount of time is the fact that when we were kids, we totally thought Stay Puffed was a real thing. Yeah, I, I just always assumed it was an East Coast marshmallow brand that we yeah. didn't have here in the Midwest. When I was a kid, I had a friend who lived uh, out east or had relatives out east, and he would tell me about devil dogs, mm. which I guess are like a chocolate ding I don't know, like a hostess kind of thing that we just didn't have here. And that was the very first time I realized, whoa, like people have different brands and stuff in other parts of the country. I totally assumed that's what this was. So amazing. Such an iconic character. And as you pointed out, they actually plant the Stay Puff seed a couple places. In Dana Barrett's yes. apartment, we actually see that on that same countertop is a bag of Stay Puff marshmallows. And apparently there's an advertisement in there too yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Amazing. So one of the things about this movie that I think is incredible is that beyond being a fun action adventure film to a certain degree, beyond being an awesome comedy, they really are talking about this incredibly important moment right this is a turning point in our understanding of the world the epistemology of the world they are going through this phase where they have proven that ghosts are real and more importantly we have the science we have the technology and the tools or the tools and the talent to interact with them and to contain them that's one of the things that's so amazing about that library scene is we have them we're seeing these characters these believers at least two of them are believers right we don't know about about Peter, if he really believes in ghosts or, but for the very first time they see one and we, we share that moment with them and it's so real. They're all clearly terrified. Like they, you know, maybe went in feeling like they were prepared for this, but it ends up being as scary for them as the moment is for us. And it's again, just a very real, very cool moment. It is. And and maybe that's the key to understanding why this is so important to us. And part of why I want to explore why is this kind of goofy comedy, slightly horror film? Why is it so iconic and so embedded in our psyche? And I think it's because even though it's comedy, it takes itself seriously and it grounds a lot of its concepts in science and in a reality of sorts. It never gets goofy or comic booky, right? And that's important difference. Some movies just go off the deep end and get a little bit silly and you can't you can't connect to them anymore in a certain way the sequel ghostbusters 2 <laughs> got super silly but uh yes this was all felt it felt very real very believable we're looking at claymation you know dog monsters running around but they sold it and it felt it all felt very real um I do want to talk more about the special effects at some point. Actually, this is a great time to talk about special effects, which are notable because almost everything we see here are practical ones as opposed to CGI. And it really shows. I think that it's a little bit like hard science fiction where you have characterization by concern for scientific accuracy or at least internal consistency and logic. And I think everything feels part of the universe. Everything feels real. Barney, what do you think? Special effects are funny. I feel like there's a parallel with video games. The best 2D old school graphics are still gorgeous. They hold up really well. You look at early 3D games. Think about like the really early PlayStation games. They're blocky that and ugly. Early Tomb Raider model where it just is, you can see the polygons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, the old 2D stuff holds up and it's still beautiful in a way that the old school practical effects we're seeing in something like Ghostbusters is still beautiful. You look at early CGI and it's horrifying. It looks so bad. There's that famous, famous example of uh, The Rock in The Scorpion yes. King. Just this nightmarish face, like old 3D 
CGI special effects don't hold up. And these effects, like you can see the flaws. Everything has, you know, the the terror dogs. What's the what's the effect? The claymation effect. Yes, like that that stop motion animation. Yeah. Ray Harryhausen. Yes, Harryhausen. Um, it has that, but then everything also has this kind of. Uh, the terror dogs have this sort of aura around them where they're superimposed into the screen that was sort of unavoidable back then. But it holds up and it still looks really good versus old CGI. They do, and they really feel as they're as if they're part of the world. They feel appropriate for the movie. Now, another piece is the the set pieces and the equipment, the props. Yes. I love the fact that everything looks real and lived in, right? It looks real. It looks uh, kind of grimy. There's nothing shiny. There's nothing. This looks like equipment that these guys threw together. There's a bit of trivia that I read. So we talked about Dana Barrett and Peter getting excited about her as a client and going to her place. This thing that he showed up with, which to me looked like um, a, a tape player, like a boombox with a turkey baster squeezer on it. <laughs> and it turns out that is an actual piece of equipment that is a uh united technologies baccarat 300 series sniffer that's used <laughs> to uh utility comes i guess it, it's used to detect gas leaks and stuff it, it's just funny that the the goofiest piece of equipment in the movie is an actual thing it's a real well it's not the goofiest the goofiest is the uh the pasta strainer they they put on lewis's head and i think that's such a good juxtaposition with the remake in 2016 where all the equipment felt toy-like and totally produced like it didn't have that homemade lived-in feeling which again pulls you away from it the fact that they're using a colander to make an eeg feels right that feels about right that would be a way they might do it the fact that the proton packs and the uh, traps are so kind of clunky and chunky i mean it seems like okay they could have actually put this you know put this uh together in a warehouse it, there's a believable build and operation i mean the way they turn things on and flip switches yeah. and lights and sounds that I mean, that, that elevator scene when they uh are in the hotel going after the ghost that would be eventually known as slimer uh they fire up that backpack for the first time and it makes that amazing sound effect that hum and everyone kind of backs up and it's like it's all believable and terrifying because it feels so unsafe (laughs) um it's brilliant it's perfect the artistry behind the ghosts themselves were really interesting too. They they took a couple of different directions. Of course, we mentioned Slimer, who became kind of iconic and a symbol of the Ghostbusters and was prominently featured in the cartoons going forward. But they also did some zombie-like ghosts, which uh, I think really was well demonstrated with the cab driver. There's a cab driver yes. scene who really is kind of a zombie. Yeah. And so they kind of spanned both being a little bit whimsical and not too scary all the way to really kind of frightening and realistic. But they put these together in this believable way. And I just I just can't give enough props to the artists behind that because you don't always see that. And it's so easy to get too cartoony and too silly where it just feels completely unbelievable. The uh, Ghostbusters 2. So the remake um, from 2016 was awful and it just got everything wrong for ghostbusters movie at the time people were upset that they were even making a new ghostbusters movie like ghostbusters was some sacred cow you couldn't mess with it and i was like uh, did you guys not see ghostbusters 2 like clearly you know you can mess with it <laughs> um there's a scene towards the beginning of the movie where they are in a courthouse and 
these ghosts pop up and they're the ghosts of some killers who were, you know, uh, put to death in the electric chair and they're flying around and they look like Muppets. Like it's really. Yeah. It felt like a Disney ride at looked, that point. I mean, it was silly. The original Ghostbusters was never silly. This was so just goofy and dumb and it was so weird. And I wonder if that's because they were trying to make it more family friendly, trying to toyify things more after the real Ghostbusters, the cartoon, which we're going to talk about, was such a big hit. And Slimer was a big thing. Slimer was a character at this point, a mascot, if you will. Mm. But the ghost in the original, yeah, we had the we had the librarian, horrifying, toned down. As we mentioned in our feature about the Lost Boys and Fright Night, two classic 80s vampire movies, the original model they created for that was way scarier, and they ended up using it for the the vampire in Fright Night, uh, but still super scary. We have Slimer, which I know now we all laugh about Slimer, and he was, wasn't he, wasn't he sort of uh, supposed to be modeled after John Belushi? Yes. Because Dan Aykroyd wrote this script originally with him and John Belushi in mind. What was the story? Didn't they... Somebody said, like, it needs to look more like John Belushi. And the the, the person who designed Slimer was like, okay, I'm on it. And didn't change it. And came back the next day and was like, here you go. (laughs) And the studio was like, perfect. (laughs) Nailed it. Um, I love that story. But even him, like, he became a silly mascot. But at the time, like, he was gross and weird and kind of scary. And just, you know, this movie tread this perfect line. Between funny and scary and weird. Fun fact, Slimer, as we know him now, was actually referred to as Onion Head by the crew of the movie because apparently the thing just stunk. It just smelled so bad. (laughs) And the name Slimer was coined in the real Ghostbusters, the cartoon, the 86 cartoon based on the Ghostbusters movie. So I think the success of the cartoon and Slimer maybe had a lot to do with these sort of cartoonifying of the sequel a bit no smoking in ghostbusters 2 in the original there's that iconic scene when ray sees slimer for the first time and there's this awesome scene of the cigarette dangling from his mouth yeah again just an effort to make it more family friendly perhaps more uh toy friendly it's interesting let's talk a little bit about the music of ghostbusters What I love about this is that there are two aspects, like a lot of our favorite movies. There is an amazing soundtrack with individual songs that is sort of like an amazing playlist from our youth. And then there is a fabulous score by Elmer Bernstein. The score I find really haunting, really eclectic. It's very different than a John Williams style Star Wars type score with light motifs, but it's not generic in any way. I mean, this is really an interesting and I think it's a score that sticks with you. Apparently, Ivan Reitman wanted a grounded, realistic score. He didn't want the music telling the audience to laugh or telling them how to react, but it really sets the tone and the feelings for a lot of the scenes. I just think it's funny you called the the score haunting. (laughs) Did I say that? Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, no pun intended, but... um, Perfect. Can I tell you about my favorite scene and how important the music was in that scene? Yes. Getting towards the end of the film, uh, the Ecto-1 is cruising across the Brooklyn Bridge. Winston's driving. Ray is studying the blueprints of the building, and they're chatting back and forth. And it's this very intimate scene And there's really no music at first. And Winston says, hey, Ray, do you believe in God? And Ray says, never met him. And they kind of go back and forth a little bit. And I love the part where he says, 
I remember Revelation 7:12, and I looked as he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood. And an interesting point there is that's actually not Revelation 7:12. Apparently, it's Revelation 6:12. Hmm. Weird. I don't know if that was intentional or not. And then Winston completes it, and the seas boiled, and the skies fell. And then he says that every every religion has a myth about the end of the world. And then Winston says, myth. Ray, has it ever occurred to you that maybe the reason we've been so busy lately is because the dead have been rising from the grave? And this is a moment. I mean, this is really a moment in the movie. This is not a funny moment. This is a frightening end of times kind of kind of moment here. This is potentially the apocalypse. And Ray says, how about a little music? And then this really quirky kind of interesting sound track plays and I never knew what it was until quite recently. It turns out that's actually part of the score and it's not another song, but it's kind of this twangy, funky, honky tonk kind of music piece that I just love. And it's just such a scene. It's like end scene and you're just kind of blown away, right? What, what comedy movie can do that? What's so funny is when I, you know, we've seen this movie countless times when I rewatched it for the show, that scene when uh, he turns on the radio, I was like, wow, this the, whatever song they picked for this scene was so unintentionally perfect. Like this is this perfect 80s sounding like transitional music. Uh, and I wondered what song it was. And then you told me it was part of the score. And I was like, oh, my God, wait, they, they made that song for that moment. And it was so perfect. And that's not to mention some of the other little quirks of the score and these little tiny moments that I think add so much to the movie. But when we think about the music of Ghostbusters, we have to quickly get to the soundtrack. And of course, one of the most important centerpieces is Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. Arguably, I think the most iconic theme song from a movie, like ever, like if we're not talking score, if we're not talking about the Star Wars score, the... You know, in terms of a song that was on the radio from a movie, I don't think you can get more recognizable than that. You can you could be walking down the street and turn around and say to the person walking behind you, who are you going to call? And they would look at you and say, hey, Ghostbuster. Well, first they would say, like, six feet, man, put your mask back on. But then they would say. Ghostbusters. Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. There's there's no that has to be the most iconic theme song ever, I think. And there's a real interesting history behind it that I feel like we were vaguely aware of, but we really learned as we studied for this episode that the original kind of inspiration for it was the Huey Lewis song called I Want a New Drug. And they had used it, I guess, as like a placeholder for a montage. And everyone sort of said, wow, this would be great. Can we get something like this? And apparently Huey Lewis was approached and asked to compose the theme. But he was already working on Back to the Future, which was going to be released in 1985. So turned it down. And then they found Ray Parker Jr., who developed this Ghostbusters theme song with a very similar riff to match that I Want a New Drug placeholder song. And I think maybe we can put in the bonus page there's a couple of interesting comparisons where you can hear them both and hear just how similar they are. And it's funny when I first read this story, I was like, what? No. But then you hear it and you're like, huh? And, uh, apparently 
Huey Lewis thought there was a, a similarity as well because he then sued Ray Parker Jr. And I guess they they settled out of court and part of the whole deal of the, the lawsuit, the settlement was that nobody was supposed to talk about it. Nobody can say what they made from the deal or any details about it. And on an episode of VH1's Behind the Music, Huey Lewis apparently talked about it. So then Ray Parker Jr., sued Huey Lewis for breaking that uh, non-disclosure agreement or whatever it was. So it's fu- it's funny to learn this backstory of all the, the drama around this, uh, what is arguably the most famous theme song from a movie ever. And while Ghostbusters was absolutely the headlining song from that album, there were so many other neat pieces. Cleaning Up the Town from the Busboys, Saving the Day by Billy Alessi and Bobby Alessi, totally iconic for this movie and then a very bizarre song that i love and listen to over and over and over it's actually part of my study and working tunes play mix is called magic by yes. Mick smiley right it has that kind of slow kind of seductive opening it's very 80s please. but then it hits this point yes please <laughs> yes that was that's and such it, and there we have our our zombie cab driver yes Amazing. And then scene. it breaks into this much more pop kind of funky song, you know, and it's just amazing. It's a great song. So all of these I played over and over and over on a cassette tape back in the day, and they have stayed with me all of these years later to be part of my playlists, you know, virtually on Apple Music or whatnot. Let's discuss the lore and mythology of Ghostbusters a little bit. I feel like it sets the tone very early on where Ray corrects Peter and says, of course you forget Peter. I was present at an undersea, unexplained mass sponge migration. (laughs) And Peter says, ooh, Ray, those sponges migrated about a foot and a half. And I love this because it immediately, deeply immerses us in the concepts that are important to the movie, that there are paranormal things happening, that there is a history of this, that they actually have both experienced it, but are also really experts on studying it, you know? Yes, and like the way they set up the characters and... Everything else about this movie, it goes, it just does such a great job making it all feel real. You know, this makes you want to jump on Google and look up sponge migrations because there's probably some uh, specific sponge migration that that Ray's referring to that actually happened. A hundred percent. And of course, it's so important to remind everybody that in 1984, we couldn't do that. There was no internet that we could access. There was no way to look this stuff up. So as little kids, we were just mesmerized by it, right? And I think we would both agree that this was a really influential film in kind of getting us interested in the paranormal, the occult, all of these kinds of things, because they made it seem so real and so scholarly. Yeah, oh yeah, this was the gateway for sure. The key master and the gatekeeper of our paranormal. To our interest in sponges and their (laughs) migrations. Exactly. And another one, just to flesh it out, is when Ray also quotes symmetrical book stacking, just like the Philadelphia mass turbulence of 1947. <laughs> I mean, these seem real. None of these are real. And we really had no way to to know that at that point. But now we do. The other thing was the classification systems, right? So we know, of course, in science, a really important thing is to have nosology. We want classification systems that are well-developed and can put things in their place. That's one of the first and earliest forms of science that people do, especially in a new field that we don't know much about. So in ufology, the, the study of UFOs, we know about close encounter system. And that's, of course, from
from uh, J. Allen Hynek, who was originally a, a, an, an astro astrologer and astrophysicist at Northwestern University before he was pulled on to Project Blue Book by the government. But here we get echoes of that when they call it uh, the focused non-terminal repeating phantasm or a class five full roaming vapor. So again, a full classification system that sounds really real. Again, if we could have, we would have looked it up years later when the internet became available to us. I was looking these things up like, wait, is this a real thing? And people really talked about this. And then of course, uh, the Tobin spirit guide that they refer to as the book that they keep going back to, uh, also is totally fake, but in of course, McQuaid arcade fashion has been defictionalized. Several different versions now have been published that sort of try to capture some of what might be in there, which I think is kind of fun. We went looking for it. I feel like we were like, okay, where do we get this book? Absolutely. When the first time I went to a gigantic bookstore in Wicker Park neighborhood, which I, th I hope is still there, uh, they had one of the largest collections of used books in the Midwest. And I was pouring through the stacks. And I have to confess that one of the things always on my short list to look for was either Tobin's Spirit Guide or Spate's Catalog, even though neither of those actually ever really existed. As kids, every time we went to the library, uh, be it the public library or the school library, we would harass our librarians <laughs> about those books, and they would insist they're not real things. We're like, mm, they are real things. But. They had to be, as did Gozer, Zool, Vince Clortho, right? But right. all of these names are fictional. There were none of these people in Hittite or Sumerian mythology, at least that we know of. There were no Torgs or Slores, the mythological creatures that the Keymaster talked about. There were no groups like the Voldrini or the McKittrick Supplicants. I mean, but these are amazing. Whoever wrote these, probably the mind of Ackroyd, but also Harold Ram's just amazing. So I love that they have all of these different pieces. And there was an interview with Ackroyd who said, quote, Gozer is based on several things. For one, there's a Gozer Chevrolet dealership in upstate New York. <laughs> a little more to the point, though, is the fact that Gozer was a name that related to a documented haunting in England, the one Poltergeist was based on, in fact. During this particular haunting, the name Gozer appeared mysteriously throughout the house written on walls and things. So we figured we might as well take something that had been reported in the public domain as an actual occurrence and use it in the film as our main demon and supernatural force, unquote. So we just talked about so much about why Ghostbusters was so believable. And if you think about it, no other movie had us harassing our librarians about <laughs> things from it. Like we, we were convinced this was real. Everything was real in this movie. And that's exactly why the some of the stuff that followed and spun off from it was not. Like why it was... So let's first talk about the official sequel to this movie ghostbusters 2 released in 89 um again i don't know if it's because of the success of all right so i guess we have to rewind let's talk about the cartoon the real ghostbusters and it was called the real ghostbusters because there was a tv show called the ghostbusters and it was really weird uh, it was a goofy slapstick kind of thing about people who, you know, hunted ghosts. Um, there was a gorilla. There was a guy in a gorilla suit with a hat. <laughs> it was very odd. And that 
harken back to part of the issues with the naming of the Ghostbusters movie as well, right? Because it was originally going to be called Ghost yes. Smashers because the same reason, right? That Ghostbusters Smashers. was taken and they had to do some some last minute uh, finagling right. to get it. So there was some kind of agreement reached where they could use the Ghostbusters name and then Filmation uh, to sort of capitalize on the success of this blockbuster movie released a cartoon, a Ghostbusters cartoon. And then uh, there was a, a real Ghostbusters cartoon aptly named the real Ghostbusters that, really, you know, was a cartoon of the movie came out. And this was a fantastic show. This was a great animated show, at least the first season. The first season is really good. It went downhill really fast because they really focused on Slimer. And again, they the, the name Slimer was coined for this show because this, this ghost that everybody liked didn't have a name. Uh, and he became a mascot in this show. And then they really focused on him to the point where the show became Slimer and the real Ghostbusters or the Ghostbusters, wow. whatever they called it. But it was like these short little Slimer skits. And it was, yeah, it got real bad real fast. But when it was good, it was awesome. It was way up there in terms of 80s cartoons. And the cartoon, it seems like, was directly responsible for the sort of cartoonification of Ghostbusters 2. It was just silly. Slimer in Ghostbusters 2? He had a wife. There was like a Slimer wife with like a blonde wig on. It was like, it was just a mess. So then we had the the 2016 reboot, which I was excited about. Uh, you know, we found out who the cast was. Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones. I yeah. mean, it really is yes. an all-star cast of talented, funny people that I think both of us gave a super benefit of the doubt. We thought this could be really fun. This movie should have been hilarious. And it was awful. Look, if this had not been Ghostbusters, if this had been a different move, I, I don't know. If they had just made it something else, maybe it would have been funny. Maybe it would have been good. Um, it's When I saw this movie for the first time, it was – it felt like Bridesmaids to me, which is a hilarious movie with Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy. Like, it was very um, ad-libby feeling and bantery and, like – it just felt so wrong for for Ghostbusters as a Ghostbusters movie, um, which is hilarious because so much of the original was ad-libbed, right? So, especially Bill Murray. So much of his stuff was ad-libbed. Absolutely. It, it, it lends itself to some of that. But I felt that the emotional center of the film was just in the wrong place. It just didn't have the right feel to it from the very beginning. And I think we talked about how everything felt so grounded in Ghostbusters and so potentially real. But here we went cartoony right away. And tell was that story about how there was the, the nice juxtaposition between the two movies and how one feels so real and the other feels just goofy? Right. Uh, somebody, I don't remember if this was a tweet or a comment somebody made on some post, but they, it was about how, so there's a, there's a line in the original Ghostbusters, how Ray's talking about the whole situation and why everything is happening. And he says uh, about Dana's apartment building, which was designed, you know, her building is the crux of this whole story. It was built and designed by Evo Shandor, who after World War One decided like, yeah, we're humanity is done. Like we're messed up. This is terrible. It needs to come to an end. So he built this whole 
building, designed and built this building as a means to bring Gozer down to destroy humanity. And Ray says, the whole building is a huge, superconductive antenna that was designed and built expressly for the purpose of pulling in and concentrating spiritual turbulence. Versus the 2016 movie where they were like, uh, somebody's making machines to make ghosts and stuff. Like, I don't remember the exact quote. I don't, like who, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and like the, the bad guy of that, that movie, the, the, yes, the big bad of that movie was a guy who was like bullied or something. He's like, yeah, you guys are mean to me. So I'm going to make ghosts. Like it was, it was so dumb. Chris Hemsworth, who we here at McQuaid Arcade love, Thor, like he's awesome. Cabin in the Woods. Also hilarious, like a talented hilarious. leading man, but also yes. great sense of humor. Yes, and we saw in this movie, like he was funny, but his character, and, and like I get the joke, like he's this beautiful man, but dumb as a bag of hammers. Like he does, like he's the <laughs> eye candy in this movie, but he's so dumb. He was so like such a, such an extreme caricature that it was just silly. Can I just nerd out on one scene, the Please. scene you, you just referenced uh, where they're in jail? Okay. And now I'm going, I'm going to admit, you know, I, I do not understand the terms fully. I don't know that these are possible. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say everything they're talk about, talking about is ultimately gibberish. Okay. Yeah. We, we, we get that. But listen how convincing this is. So Egon, they're all staring at the, at the plans of Dana's building. And he says, the structure of this roof cap is exactly like the kind of telemetry tracker that NASA uses to identify dead pulsars in deep space. Ray <laughs> looks at it and says, cold riveted girders with cores of pure selenium. And then Peter looks around and says to everybody who's staring at them in the jail cell, everybody getting this so far? So what? I guess they just, they just don't make them like they used to. And he says, no, nobody ever made him like this. The architect was either a certified genius or an aesthetic wacko. I mean, this is just amazing, right? So these guys have really painted this picture. Again, it may be, it is gibberish, clearly, but it was fabulous. And it brought you in and it sounds believable. It's written at such a high level that you were like, wow, pure selenium cores. I mean, this must be important as opposed to, right, the machine seems to amplify the ghost signal. It's like, what? Uh, <laughs> and then we have, I feel like kind of the unsung, unsung hero here is Winston, Ernie Hudson as Winston Zedmore, who is this brilliant way to um, I guess in the original idea for the movie, um, he had a much bigger part because he they had Eddie Murphy in mind to play Winston. So he had a much bigger part. Um, but when Eddie Murphy couldn't or wouldn't do it, they trimmed the part down a lot. And But they still used him in such a brilliant way as this everyman, like he's just a guy looking for a job. And they use him as a way to explain stuff to us as the audience. One of my favorite scenes in this movie is when they are all um, talking to the mayor in the mayor's office after um, Walter Peck. Yes. After Walter from the EPA. Again, how 80s is this movie that the EPA is the bad guy here? (laughs) And he's brilliant, by the way. He's so brilliant in this part. I guess Ivan Reitman um, wanted a different kind of bad guy than Animal House had, right? Animal House, uh, Niedermeyer, was that his name? Yes. You know, was, was over the top, um, played by, by the way, a uh, close personal friend of mine. Um, that's not true. He's a friend of a friend, and I've hung out with him like twice. <laughs> and he played the master in Buffy, in the first season of Buffy. 
and I just harassed him mercilessly about questions about Buffy. Um, so he's probably not returning my calls anytime soon, but he's a very nice guy. He was fun to hang out with. Very nice guy, <laughs> friend of a friend. Um, he wanted a much more sort of grounded bad guy in pack for this movie. And he is perfect. Uh, William Atherton. Yes. Plays it brilliantly. And he, he does this wonderful job of playing off of uh, Bill Murray off of Peter. But they're seen together uh, in the in the mayor's office. It's so great. And the, we get to see Ernie Hudson, Winston really shine. I feel like those are the, his two great scenes. Your favorite scene in the car with Ray and in the mayor's office where he explains to the mayor, like, look, I'm not a nut like these guys, uh, but I've seen some crazy stuff. One piece of equipment that is of central importance that we didn't talk about specifically quite yet was the Ecto-1. This was a 1959 Cadillac Miller Meteor Futura duplex that was a limousine-style end-loader combination car and apparently was actually an ambulance conversion, even though I always thought it was a hearse as a kid. It looked kind of like a hearse. And this was the car that Ray pulls up with and telling and told us that he paid $4,800 for and is a bit of a fixer-upper. <laughs> Uh, a wonderful piece that became iconic. And in fact, one of my most cherished toys is a little tiny matchbox version of the Ecto one that just has all this great detail and is just incredible. And of course, Barney and I got to see a replica of the Ecto one at the Milwaukee retro game conference, the Midwest gaming classic, the Midwest. Yes. Fantastic. Uh, absolutely fantastic event. Um, can't say enough good stuff about it. And the Ecto-1 also inspired a pseudo-defictionalization in the form of a children's drink. Ecto-cooler from High C. <laughs> this is the quintessential 80s drink. Forget uh, Sunny D. Forget all the other... Like, Ecto-cooler is... And this was some... Like, kids today wouldn't even understand the delivery mechanism of this drink because remember high C came in those big cans, the kind of cans like a, a restaurant would get tomato sauce in like a giant can. I don't know if it was a quart. I don't know if it was like a gallon, these big cans that you would have to take a, a church key and punch two holes in it. One for the, the spout and one for like the airflow and then gung, 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 point out. They, they may have shown up. I'm sure it showed up in like juice boxes once those were a thing. But uh, yeah, Ecto Cooler was this green, bright green drink from High C. That uh, Slimer as the mascot was all over it. This was quintessential Ghostbusters merch. Yeah, a little bit of trivia here. I dug up on the old internet. So as we, I think we mentioned. The original title, so Dan Aykroyd wrote, wrote this movie with John Belushi in mind as his co-star, and it was called Ghost Smashers, uh, and it was, he wrote a draft of this movie, it, it took place in the future, and there were teams of ghost smashers throughout the world, uh, like paramedics or firefighters, and after looking at the script, Ivan Reitman said such a film would cost at least... $300 million in 19 <laughs> that's in 1984 dollars so apparently Dan Aykroyd Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman spent three weeks locked down in Martha's Vineyard 
revising uh, Aykroyd's script. I want to point out that $300 million in 1984 would be worth approximately $761 million today. So we're talking about three quarters of a billion dollars. Wow. That's an expensive movie. Uh, The role of Peter Venkman. That's a big Twinkie. (laughs) Talking about some alternate casting. Uh, The role of Peter Venkman was turned down by both Michael Keaton and Chevy Chase. Um, Harold Ramis had no intention of playing Egon until he realized he was kind of just perfect for it. So he did it. And John Candy turned down the role of Lewis, Lewis Tully, because his, do you remember this? His ideas for the character were rejected because it was just wacky. Like a German accent. He wanted to be, have a German accent, have a pair of schnauzers. And it was just super out there. And apparently the, all the, you know, we had the terror dogs and uh, all the dog imagery that that would add to the movie was seemed to be a little too much. So they went with uh, Rick Moranis, who was the only cast member, original cast member they could not get back for the 2009 video game, the Ghostbusters video game, which uh, has been recently remastered that we played on uh, the Nintendo Switch. The, uh, this game was cool because it was be- long before... You know, we knew that Ghostbusters Afterlife was going to be a thing. This was written as, basically, as Ghostbusters 3 by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, and it was really neat. It was a really fun game. Yeah, this has been really fun to play on the Switch as, I guess, a remastered version. The graphics mm-hmm. are fantastic. Everybody really looks pretty photorealistic to the characters. But the best part is that you get to be immersed in the world of Ghostbusters with the proton packs, with the traps, and you're in these iconic locations. It starts out in a hotel, very much like the hotel in the movie, if not the same one. And I love it because the mechanic is actually quite addictive. You have to tire the ghosts out a little bit and then you sort of hold them in place and then you have to set your trap and bag them it's absolutely fun if not a little bit repetitive it sort of felt kind of like work after my fourth or fifth (laughs) ghost i'm like wow i really feel like i'm a ghostbuster (laughs) yeah they did a neat job with the game mechanics we played a uh a ghostbusters game back on your old apple computer that was such a fun take on it because there was some of that there was the catching the ghosts and stuff but there was also this neat um, like business aspect to it. You had to allocate funds um, to for upgrades for the Ecto-1. Uh, do you remember that? I love that game. It was very rudimentary, but right, there were different aspects of it. There was a part where you're driving the Ecto-1 down the highway and kind of vacuuming up ghosts. Then you'd get to the location and then you would do this little, I mean, it was so crude, two little Ghostbusters would kind of move in and try to trap the ghost. And then, right, when you'd back out, you could see the whole city, different buildings. You could see where there was uh, paranormal activity uh, with your PKE meter. So it was all about PKE. And then you could go to those spots while you were trying to get money from your work to build up your equipment and get better equipment, better stuff. And then the final part was really neat. I mean, you actually got to fight the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. So it really was a fun game that had multiple dimensions. And boy, they really don't make them like that anymore. We also got to recently watch on YouTube a montage of the different versions of that game that came out for so many different right. systems yes everything from right the Commodore to the Atari to the Apple it was so fun to see how the different systems handled different aspects of the game because some of them 
the way they rendered the positron colliders, the the beams. Yeah. Other ones had different uh, graphics on the ghosts themselves. It was just really interesting to see how how they interpreted it differently. And some of the the different systems just lent themselves better to the more actiony aspects of the game, and they leaned into that on the different versions. Um, it's a really cool classic game that I feel like maybe doesn't get uh, the love it deserves. Ghostbusters remains an iconic and indelible entry into the great 80s movies and onto our psyches. Ray, Egon, Peter, and Winston will forever be ingrained as the scientist cum heroes who saved us from a Sumerian eschatological nightmare. And in so doing, lit a multi-billion dollar cultural fire that has yet to be extinguished. We are eagerly awaiting the next chapter in the Ghostbusters story with 2021's Ghostbusters Afterlife. And on that note, we look forward to seeing you at the next one. But in the meantime, stay limber.